Welcome to Confronting the Madness, a podcast exploring the psychological issues of our time. My name is Mark Corthius, host of Confronting the Madness. In this episode, I spoke with Sanjay Singhal. Sanjay is a Toronto-based entrepreneur, investor, and philanthropist. I spoke with Sanjay about dealing with his bipolar diagnosis early on in his entrepreneurial journey, about the challenges he confronted with the healthcare system while trying to access appropriate treatment for his daughter's eating disorder, how he got involved in funding psychedelic medicine, and lastly, the work he is now doing with his foundation, the McCain Foundation. Through the McCain Foundation, Sanjay, along with the likes of Tim Ferriss, was one of the five founding funders of the Centre for Psychedelic Research at Imperial College in London. It was a fascinating conversation, and I am deeply appreciative to Sanjay for speaking with me. And now, I bring to you, Sanjay Singhal. I'm here with Sanjay Signal, um, founder of the Nikian Foundation, amongst other things. Sanjay, thanks so much for joining us, and, and how are you doing today? Great, thanks, Mark. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no, thanks so much for uh, for joining me. Just a quick background for for those listening. So, um, I worked as the CEO of the Mental Health Foundation for a number of years, and has been have been really interested in understanding mental health and mental illness, and uh, more recently got connected with um, Ronan Levy, who's the executive chairman at Field Trip Health, and just interested in understanding. Uh, where organizations are investing, if they are from a, from a charitable perspective, in in psychedelic medicine, because there's a, you know, they call it a renaissance uh, reemerging in the space. And he said he wasn't sure, but uh, the guy to talk to was Sanjay, and so he was gracious enough to connect me with you. And we had a call a few weeks ago. Um, and before we had the call, it led me down this rabbit hole of, okay, who's Sanjay, right? And you know, you Google you Google your name, and then oh, Sanjay's got a, a book, uh, Zero to Tesla: Confessions of an Entrepreneurial Journey. If I got that right, and so I read the book, and then I, I go on your LinkedIn profile, and then the next thing you know, and I'm like, you know what? I need to talk to this guy on my podcast, but he probably won't. He probably doesn't want to do that. Like I just started this thing, and nobody listens to it, and I haven't even done one yet. And I just emailed you, and you're. <laughs> You said yes right away, and so so thank you so much for uh, for joining. And I, can I, I just going to read a quick bio that's on your on your LinkedIn profile um, that you noted you got the entrepreneurial bug early, um, and you quickly progressed to large scale tech businesses in the '90s after you did your MBA, and you wrote that the bug damn near killed me as one idea after another failed. Uh, culminating in personal bankruptcy at age 31. So, you know, this isn't, I, I encourage all the entrepreneurial listeners out there to, to read Zero to Tesla to get the flavor of, of Sanjay's entrepreneurial journey, but just maybe speak quickly to the, the, the entrepreneurial journey you had up to your bankruptcy at age 31. Um, sure. So I um, grew up kind of knowing I was going to be an entrepreneur. Uh, my father was an entrepreneur in property development. Family was comfortable with taking risks. And um, people kept throwing ideas at me all the time. Hey, you should try this business. You should try, you should try that business. And uh, the first business I tried was delivering videos to people's homes, you know, like VHS cassettes. So pre-internet, pre-DVD. It, it was, you know, seven businesses had failed doing this before me. And I 
told my entrepreneurship professor that I would succeed where they had failed because I was smarter than they are Mm -hmm. or they were. That's one of the dumbest things I ever said. (laughs) And um, so so the business didn't work out. It took only six months to fail. I lost about 100,000 of mostly other people's money. Apologized to everyone, got back to my day job. Uh, which was at a Fortune 500 telecom company called Nortel that doesn't exist anymore. Um, then um, the second uh, startup was the bigger one where I developed a um, mobile wireless device, the old, U- the old US Robotics Palm Pilot. I worked for a company that made wireless modems, and I figured out a way to connect a Palm Pilot, hack the software, put a wireless modem on it, and send and receive email. Um, on my Palm Pilot, which and this was about two years before the BlackBerry came out. Um, fantastic idea. We had customers, we had a fully functioning product, we had um, you know partners lined up, AT&T Wireless as well as US Robotics, and I ran that company into ground into the ground through what would you call that megalomania? Like I just thought I could do right. anything, and right. I was out there making mania deals on steroids. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, so I pulled off some amazing um, feats of networking and negotiation, but I also spent money in really stupid ways, had inappropriate relationships, um, didn't manage staff well. And in the end, um, or just before the end, my staff all tried to stage an intervention uh, with me where like 10 of them got me together in a room, sat me down, surrounded me in a circle and said, dude, you have to stop doing this. And I just saw it as a mutiny and, you know, fired everybody and then pretty much shut the business down a week later. Um, and what, year, what year are we looking at right now, Sanjay? Are we in the, are we in the nineties right now? Uh, we're in the, yeah, that was the, towards the end of 1996. And you just to, just to interject for a second in your book, cause I thought this was fascinating. You even had a meeting with um, Jim Baselli, right? Just before, and he, because because you were poaching, you were poaching BlackBerry staff. I think that was maybe just That's right. Yeah, that was. yeah, poaching uh, sales staff from BlackBerry, and uh, Jim Balsilli and Mike Lazaridis at BlackBerry got wind of this, and uh, called me, you know, on the carpet. Um, you know, they, they had no legal authority, but I obviously had a lot of respect for them. Rim was a huge company with a lot of um, um, you know presence in the telecom sphere. So I went up to visit them and um, thought I could negotiate some kind of a deal with them to for using uh, my technology as well. But it, really, it was it was for them to berate me for trying to hire away their sales engineers uh, <laughs> and give me a warning. But at the same time, they asked me to show them the device that I had built. And you know, there's no way of knowing for sure. But it was two years later that the BlackBerry came out. And it sure was a heck of a coincidence that that they called me, took a look at my device, and then went off and right. later on comes BlackBerry. Created the first uh, phone that you can you can have email on. And so, uh, so what was the you know two chapters in your book stuck out to me? And again, um, you know, there's one chapter entitled "Maybe You Should Go See Someone," and I I don't know chronologically if this falls before or after the blackberry story but maybe just talk through you know the first time uh i think it was a psychiatrist had had suggested perhaps you had bipolar disorder and your reaction to that um 
suggestion. Yeah, so I'm going to go back even a little bit further than that. Sure. Um, into my teens, through graduate school, sorry, through university, graduate school, and early career, I'd always suffered from bouts of depression, and they seemed to get longer and more intense as time went on. Um, and for example, I remember when I started my master's degree in engineering at the University of British Columbia, I spent most of my first semester just getting up at one o'clock in the afternoon, skipping all my classes, hanging out at video arcades. Um, I just wasn't interested in, in doing the work. And then um, towards the end of my first year, I got, you know, all of a sudden I felt like getting out of bed and did started doing work uh, intensively, would stay up for you know, two nights in a row working on my thesis. That part, of course, never bothered me. Mania never bothers anybody. Mm. Um, but the depression really bothered me. And uh, a little bit before that, when I went to my first move to San Diego from Toronto, um, I went through a very long nine-month uh, depression period where I just didn't want to get out of bed. Um, you know, my wife was saying, you know, what the hell is the matter with you? And so I thought of it as depression. Right. And I saw a therapist, um, I saw a doctor, and I guess, you know, looking back on it, what I wanted was for somebody to tell me it wasn't my fault, mm. that um, that you're sick, you have a disease, here's some pills maybe that can make you better. Right. But my wife and others around me would say, you know, just get your ass in gear, stop being so lazy. Just, right. you know. Yeah, yeah. And so, so I felt, you know, I wanted the diagnosis of a mental disorder, but depression seemed like a relatively harmless diagnosis. Mm -hmm. So then, after that, the meltdown after my business, when in, I fell into another deep depression, went to see a, a psychiatrist, and the psychiatrist said, you know, tell me all about this. And an hour later of taking my history, he said, you know, you, you don't suffer from depression. You've actually, you're actually manic depressive. Um, and to me, there was a tremendous stigma around bipolar disorder around the diagnosis of being manic depressive it's like did did you even know what that meant other than just the you know hearing that as a as a pejorative uh i guess the thing is i know so much about it now that that it's hard yeah, to get yeah. back that position but you're right odds are all i knew was the name um manic depressive it's just you know mania just it's crazy you know right. you're a crazy person and I didn't want to be manic depressive. You know, I wanted to be just depressed. Right. And so I refused the diagnosis. I wasn't completely obtuse about it. I mean, they tried me on lithium and I reacted badly to that. The, cycled through a bunch of antidepressants. Um, eventually found one that worked, but had lots of side effects and didn't want to stay on it. Um, and years later, it was perhaps five years later, I met a psychiatrist who very carefully explained to me what bipolar disorder was, that I had the worst form of it, mm -hmm. and there was a new experimental medication that I should try um, that wasn't designed for bipolar disorder, but had been discovered in other tests to be useful in treating the condition. It's called uh, Lamotrigine. Lamictal is the, um, the commercial name. It's a miracle drug, Mark. It's a miracle drug. I took it. You know how some people say SSRIs don't work for depression and things like yep. that. So, no, this is a miracle drug. Um, I took it two weeks later. I woke up and I felt normal. I felt like maybe for the first time in my life. 
Wow. Um, so sorry, tell me, did you take it uh, once a day kind of thing? or how, what was, And then was it something that you were prescribed ongoing or did you did you taper off eventually? And Or how does that, maybe talk through how that works. Yeah, um, so I started off with um, 200 milligrams, which is about the minimum effective dose of it, uh, like uh, gradually working up to it. And uh, at 200 milligrams, it kicked in. I think probably for five years, I took it at that dosage and mm-hmm. everything was fine. But I thought, maybe maybe I'm over this and I'll, yep. I'll taper off of it. Tapered off of it. Um, everything was fine for a few months mm-hmm. and then just started to spiral downwards into a depression again. Wow. Went to see the same psychiatrist. Yeah. Um, and I said, hey, you know, I'm feeling a little bit off. <laughs> and uh, he said... <laughs> He said, um, you stopped taking the medication. I said, yeah, but, you know, I was fine. And, mm-hmm. and, or I'm fine. But, you know, I don't think it's the medication. Right. He, he, he took the inventory or whatever and says, you're depressed. I go, really? And I, said, I was just kind of, kind of feeling down. He goes, no, you're depressed. And he rhymes off all these um, checklist items. It's like, oh, son of a gun. I am depressed. Um, so I started the medication again, instantly fixed it. In fact, the funny part was it fixed it in 24 hours. I took wow. the pill, woke up the next morning, everything was great. Wow. Um, since then, just on the same vein, yep. uh, as recently as a couple of years ago, I had a very significant psychedelic experience. And I thought maybe I had purged the bipolar disorder. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I tried tapering off it again. Um, same thing happened a few months later, started to go downhill. But when I came back on it, I took the minimum dose, which is 50 milligrams. And... I've been on 50 milligrams ever since. So I didn't need the full 200. Right. just needed 50. And it, and is the side effect profile at 200 significantly more than at 50? No, there's never any side effects, in fact. No side effects um, at all. No, no. Um, it, it's what I love about it. Uh, but um, my desire in getting off it was purely philosophical. Mm-hmm. It's like, hey, mm-hmm. if there's a pill I don't need to take, let me not take it. Yeah, but, yeah. very, very common journey for for individuals too where they whether it's um for bipolar disorder or ssris or you know whatever it may be um think they're fine and so on and off on and off on and off um so you can you just get back to the the timeline here what at what at what point were you prescribed um or diagnosed and then you started taking the is that more into the uh, early 2000s or? Yeah. So um, so I know by my age, uh, okay. the first time I was told, the first time I was told um, I was bipolar was in 1997. And I finally accepted the diagnosis in 2005. Okay. And in between, there was lots of antidepressants and phases of depression. There was couple of manic sessions in there, but more, more restrained manic sessions than, uh, than the previous one. Um, and in 2005, I started this particular medication and my life has been one uninterrupted success after another since mm-hmm. then from meeting the right woman, getting married, having kids, mm-hmm. a series of successful businesses, um, I'm just not making the same mistakes that I made before. And and some of that too is just learning from the failures. It's not just not by being bipolar. 
I made a bunch of mistakes that yeah. uh, I'm very aware of. So, so, so I learned, and I've got a good good group of people around me that I don't alienate through my manic episodes. Right, uh, it's great. Just to, I mentioned this when I was reading through your book. Um, did you, when you look back on the the manic more than the depressive episodes, do you attribute those some of your success also to you know that and impulsivity or extreme um attitude towards getting what your your mind is setting towards or, or not i'm just just out of curiosity i i heard this great definition of what an entrepreneur is years ago and it was um somebody who can envision a future um uh where they accomplish something using resources they don't currently have control over. And that feels like my life is like through the manic episodes, earlier experiences, I've seen people create great works of, you know, corporate, uh, other types of achievement, mm -hmm. just because they believe they could. Right. And the mania, if it does anything, it removes any obstacles to belief. Right. And right. just, wow, I can see the future and I know I can get there. And and I'm going to get there. So yeah, that uh, you know it actually kind of reminds me. We're going to both psychedelics. How I started meditating after taking psychedelics because psychedelics instantly show you what the what further down the path looks like mm -hmm. of like consciousness. Um, and then then you start getting there through normal means. So instead of being manic, mania showed me what the end result could be like. And now it's like, let's get there through more normal means. Hmm. Interesting. Just quickly, I want to ask you a question out of curiosity about, and because I'm a lay person, you know, maybe just talk through, this is on the entrepreneurial side, and then I'd like to, to dive into um, your your work with your foundation and, and how you got there and uh, the work you've been doing and, and, and this the way you see the work going forward. But when you say that you sold audiobooks.com to RB Media, who then sold it to KKR, and you wrote resulting in the proverbial and much pursued, quote, exit, end quote, a short 13 years later in 2016, maybe walk me through how that transaction actually looks from a practical perspective. So that's a long time. <laughs> yeah. Um and, and to be clear, it was making it was making quite a bit of money in the mm. second half of that that sixteen years. Um, so um, it wasn't a sixteen year slog, right? Uh, right. You know, there, so, so some of it was a slog, a lot of it wasn't. Um, so I'm not sure if I understand the question question correctly. But do you mean the actual details of? you know, the psychology or the offer and how that happened? The yeah, 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 maybe just the, the latter stages um, and, and how you eventually exited. And maybe I can cut that question out if it's, um, if it's not... Uh, no, I, I mean, I, let, yeah. me, let me give you a quick version sure. and you can tell me if, uh, if you yeah. want to dig into any of it. Um, essentially, because the company was making money and growing, we would get calls every once in a while about whether I was interested in selling. And I would always say no. Uh, because because it was profitable. Mm -hmm. And at some point, I got enamored with the idea of becoming a venture capitalist. Mm. And so a U.S. fund called 500 Startups that I had a lot of respect for 
um, suggested that if I didn't have a company to run, um, I could be the partner for Canada and run my own fund up here. So the next call I got to sell the company, I actually said, okay, um, you know, you want to do some due diligence, knock yourself out. Yeah. And then I, I assigned my second in command to run the company and I went and called 500 startup and said, okay, that's it. I sold my company or whatever. I'm not involved anymore. I want to be the partner for Canada. Right. That due diligence actually went on for like a year, mm. but eventually ended up in a, in a sale. And it actually was really beneficial that I didn't care if I sold the company. Right. I just didn't want to be running it because the offer went up by 50%. So it doubled, sorry, hundred percent. The offer doubled from their initial offer and then ended up being triple because of the terms of the deal and the type of stock I got as a result. Um, yeah, it went from being a, I'm not sure I'm so interested to, oh my God, that was amazing. <laughs> shrewd, shrewd business play, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. So um, just switching gears towards the, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to butcher this name even though you told me, Nikayan Foundation? Yep, yep. Um, so when when did you start thinking, you know, okay, if I'm going to sell my company for X dollars and I have enough money to live or whatever, whatever that looks like, you know, what I want to do next is start a philanthropic foundation focused on psychedelic medicine. At what point did that enter your mind as a, as, as an, a conceptual idea? And then how did you go about making it become a reality? Sure. So to be clear, when I sold the company, and I realized I had all this financial freedom, what I decided next was to open a bar, which oh, yeah, is yeah, I yeah. Think, a more traditional kind of uh, <laughs> sequence of events. Is that coffee, oyster, champagne? Yeah, exactly. And uh, it's a phenomenal bar. Uh, it was so much fun building that place because we did it not to make money, but to introduce a concept into Toronto that didn't exist, a more theatrical dining <laughs> experience. Anyway, um, on the foundation side, so unfortunately, my daughter, who's um, 25 now, uh, suffers from anorexia and quite a severe uh, uh, version of it, mm -hmm. um, but still highly functioning. And in fact, now she's a second year resident in psychiatry at the University of Toronto. Oh, um, that's awesome. You know, yeah, thank you. And with a, with a mission to solve this problem for other uh, people afflicted with it. And her treatment stories um, at the hands of various medical organizations and professionals is a real story of what happens when people don't know uh, what they're doing mm -hmm. and they try and come up with treatments in in a in a space of of, of out of ignorance. Would you it can be talking through that that journey a little bit? Is that something you're we could go go down that road or no? Yeah. Um, so you know, when she was eight years old. She stopped eating and... Um, eight years old. Eight years old. Yeah, okay. Her um, mother checked her into sick kids. and We were divorced uh, at that time. Mother checked her into sick kids where they force-fed her um, for a couple of days. And she came out and then became a kid who didn't like to eat, um, but wasn't super thin, I think. Right. Um, just didn't like to eat. You need to be encouraged all the time to eat. At 16, um, her doctor, her mother, and, and I went along with it, um, 
decided that uh, this was becoming too much of a problem. She wasn't able to maintain her weight. And uh, she was checked into sick kids again and not force fed. Well, she was, let's say she was, she was told she had to eat um, or, the, or she'd be committed. Um, so it wasn't like a tube, but she was, she was forced to eat, um, became depressed, suicidal. It was all kinds of stuff going on. But in this misguided notion that if you can just get them back to a normal weight, they'll suddenly start eating. Right. Um, that happens to almost nobody. And when, when, I started, when I started to suspect what was going on and eventually put my foot down and got her out of that program, um, I asked the doctors, I said, look, I see the same, the people that you keep saying you're curing, I keep seeing them back in here like six months later. Right. Yeah. You know, how can you say that your program is successful? And they said, no, no, it's, we get them back to the weight they're supposed to be at, so it's successful. But that's not, that's not a cure. Right. Right. I can force feed somebody. I'm not curing them. Right. Um, and they said, there's no money. I said, why don't you just follow up with the parents or something and, and see if, uh, how the kids are doing? Mm-hmm. And they said, there's no money for that research. Uh, no, first they said, it's, a, it's um, uh, a privacy concern. I said, I, I'll go out there and get 20 signatures from parents right now saying, right. please follow up with me. Yes. And they said, oh, well, there's no money for, for research. Yeah. Um, I said, so there's money, lots of money to treat people, but no money to find out if the treatment's working. So at that time, 10 years ago, yep. I thought someday, if I can, I'm going to fund an organization to prove that the current techniques don't work. Mm. And um, I told my daughter I would support her to do this. Uh, she was, at the time, wanted to go to med school. I said, you go to med school, you get out, and you and I will start this organization together. Um, and once, once she got out, she was traumatized. Still has PTSD from that experience, but went to med school, controlled her own eating um, to get through it. And um, then out of the blue, two years ago, um, I heard Robin Carhart-Harris, a researcher at Imperial University in London, um, speaking at a conference in Toronto. And he mentioned that he thought psilocybin might be a potential treatment for anorexia. So not not a, uh, sorry, not just a treatment, a cure. Mm-hmm. So my daughter and I actually flew across to London to meet with him, meet with the team, came away thinking, hey, this is worth a shot, mm-hmm. and agreed to fund him, being one of the, the uh, one of four donors who set up their, uh, their center at Imperial. Um, their flagship trial was for major depressive disorder, but their second trial is for anorexia. It hasn't started yet, actually. It's all the approvals are done, everything's set. But COVID's present, prevented them from dosing people. Right. Um, and so rather than trying to prove that the current systems don't work, it's like, let's just leapfrog um, to trying right. to find actual solutions um, for, for the anorexia. And since then... My daughter had one more experience, uh, unfortunately, where she was hospitalized and they just went through the same incredibly ineffective series of actions that had me furious, ripping my hair out, threatening to sue a hospital before they would, uh, they would relent. Um, which makes me occasionally think that with the foundation's resources, which are substantial, mm-hmm. to go out there and actually shut down these organizations that think, you know, this, this entire refeeding 
approach to anorexia is based on a 1940s military study that was done that showed that if you deliberately starved soldiers over a period of time, about 25% of them, when they uh, were given food again, reverted to normal. Mm -hmm. Um, The purpose of the study was to demonstrate that you could create anorexia because 75% of them did not return to normal. Right. it was, it was complete. It's, the problem is it's the only study anybody ever had on on the effects of long-term not eating. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's led to multiple generations of trauma induced by medical professionals on, on teens who just want to be thin. Mm. Um, and then the treatment is what causes the much deeper um, uh, disease to occur. There, there's, there is a lot more to it. I'm, I'm dramatically oversimplifying the situation. There is a lot more to it, comorbidities. Um, there are genuine concerns here. But one of the things that I realized when I was depressed and bipolar is that depression is just a name they give a set of symptoms. Mm-hmm. It, there is no universal cause. It's not like how you know my foot doesn't work because my leg has been severed due to an accident. The cause is your leg was severed, right? right. And the symptom is your yes. foot doesn't work. But depression, no, there's so many causes and inputs and different things that can fix it. Quite often therapy can fix it, sometimes perhaps medicine. Um, And I believe anorexia is the same. All mental mental disorders, these are labels we put on things that that have much deeper, deeper um, causes that need to be examined. Yeah, no, I'm I'm glad you said that. You know, one of the, there's a book called, um, it's by Anne Harrington called Psychiatry's Troubled Search for the Biology of, of Mental Illness. And I read it a, a few years ago. And it's not a, that I'm not an anti-psychiatrist by any means, but um, there was a quote in there from Tom Insel, who is the former director of the National Institute for Mental Health in the United States, which is the largest um, funder of mental health research in the world. And, you know, they went on, uh, and NIMH went on this huge kind of biological psychiatry research um, looking at, you know, genetics and neuroscience. And I was really interested in that. And then I read this quote, and I'm just going to read it to you. Um, and Tom Insel, this is after he left. Um, he said, I spent 13 years at, at NIMH, National Institute for Mental Health, really pushing on neuroscience and genetics of mental disorders. And when I look back on that, I realized that, well, I think I succeeded at getting a lot of really cool papers published by cool scientists at fairly large costs, I think $20 billion. I don't think we moved the needle in reducing suicide, reducing the hospitalizations, improving the recovery of, for tens of millions of people who have mental illness. I hold myself accountable for that. And I read that, you know, and at the time, just thinking how cool it was that we're doing these imaging of brains and looking at the genetics for, for mental illness. And I have, you know, family history of alcoholism and all this stuff. So I'm, and then, you know, you read that from a guy and at the time I was with a foundation giving away, you know, a million dollars and, and thinking you're moving the needle on some things. And it was both deflating, but also made me uh, try to reimagine, okay, well, if this, if mental health is a, you know, a societal crisis that we're facing. We're going to have to reimagine how to come up with novel treatments and solutions. And so, you know, that kind of went me down the path of things like repetitive transcranial magnetic stimulation. So non-invasive brain stimulation um, and then things like psychedelics. And so, you know, one of the interesting 
quotes on on your website, uh, nikayan.org, um, was from Stanislav Grof, which which is on the front. It's the main quote on your page saying, uh, "Psychedelics used responsibly and with proper caution would be for psychiatry what the microscope is for biology or the telescope is for astronomy." And Stanislav Grof is a psychiatrist and a medical doctor. I think he said that in 1975. <laughs> yeah. and, and then you know you you said um, that psychedelics could be the greatest fundamental advance in treating mental health in the past 50 years just in time for the greatest mental health crisis in living memory so maybe talk about you know I, thank you for sharing by the way the story about um, your daughter and, and you know the catalyst for driving you to start this foundation but also maybe talk about as you've progressed in this space, and I know it's only been a few years, but you know what you've learned um, and seen through your conversations and dialogue with researchers or other funders, or or even even from the business side, because um, you're also involved with with Field Trip Health, which is a a psychedelic company here in in Canada. So, um, how do you, how do you see see the future in this space? Um. You know, it's a shame that progress has been dampened so much by the U.S. war on drugs. It's it's impossible to overstate just how much progress is lost um, by this, and how you know the U.S. is the I'm not to say the only country because I don't know that for sure, but it's the only country I can name off the top of my head that has an increasing suicide rate. Um, there's this this false perception that suicides are going up all over the world. That's not true. Yeah. It's, it's among adolescents in the United States. And, uh, you know, there's a crisis of, of meaning. There's a crisis of connection, many issues here. The unmonitored use of drugs is problematic. Um, but, you know, we took away the best weapon we had for insight into mental health in 1972 and we still haven't given it back, right? I mean, we're allowed to do clinical trials now on psychedelics, you know, our telescope, our, our microscope. We're finally allowed to use that tool. But we're still seeing um, governments who took away access to psychedelics with no proof whatsoever, mm -hmm. requiring study after study after study to show that they're safe, even though you know, millions of people use them every day and they're perfectly safe. Mm -hmm. um, so the future is the tests are going to show that it's that it's the most productive tool we have to enhance therapy these drugs are not useful on their own um they require introspection they require um i guess integration crystallization of your thoughts talking it over with a therapist talking it over with friends you can do it on your own with some experience but in essence, they they connect you to people, and it's loss of connection that's I think at the center of of almost all mental disorders. You know, you lose the sense of who you are, what your role is, or your place in the universe. Um, and psychedelics will will uh, help to address that as we get to know the mechanism of action better. It's interesting the um, the people I know who are funding. Uh, you know, this is a massively philanthropy-funded um, 
industry mm-hmm. because uh, the, the molecules, MDMA, psilocybin, DMT, are all public domain. And so big pharma won't spend money to prove that they work for, for treating mental disorders. Mm-hmm. Therefore, there's been over $100 million of philanthropy put into this space, mainly in the U.S., but all over the world, um, to get the drug development through the, uh, through the FDA and through other national um, health regulatory organizations. Um, and then the commercial people will take over for training and clinical deployment and making sure it's covered by insurance, all that kind of stuff. But all those philanthropists, where did $100 million worth of philanthropy come from? It came from people taking these drugs. I, I'm not funding this because I don't know what's going to happen. And it's like, gee, I wonder if psychedelics are going to work. It's because they work. It's because I've tried it. People I know have tried it, address our own um, uh, issues, come to a better understanding of the world, better understanding of other people. And it happens over and over and over again. Um to a point where there is no question that it works. We just need to have a bunch of diagrams and, and charts. Right, right. So we can, so we can convince um, the people who don't want to try it themselves. And what's your perspective on um, Canada's progress over the last few years uh, as it as it posed to or, or, or juxtaposed against the United States, for example? And do you think we're poised to... Um, progress quicker now that there's you know institutional investors interested and companies popping up all over the place or is that not a factor that you see influencing the the political folks well we're we're lucky in one sense in canada that nobody here is going to win an election by being anti-drug and so so you you won't see the conservatives coming out you know, with a strong anti-drug position, um, and therefore the liberal um, liberals are allowed to act with some more freedom. Um, and so the, the the current health minister is is very pro research and pro um, finding alternative solutions. Um, but even then, we were all surprised when she granted a federal exemption to a cancer patient with an end of life diagnosis and to use psilocybin to treat uh, that patient. That just came a few months ago. Mm-hmm. We were, um, our organization as well as uh, many other people were queued up for a Supreme Court fight to in order to get that exemption and get the federal government to relent. But then they proactively went ahead and said, no, tell you what, go ahead. We think, you know, we think this might work. And it worked great. That mm-hmm. first treatment was fantastic. Um, and since then they've gotten 23 more exemptions. The pace of them has gotten to the point where um, the the minister has asked for submissions on how to create a protocol around, not legalization per se, but they're going to change the um, special access program, which is our compassionate use program, to uh, allow doctors to prescribe MDMA and psilocybin uh, for disorders that they haven't successfully been able to treat by other means which is de facto legalization. Mm-hmm. The, this didn't work for cannabis because there was never um, cannabis produced to the, to the quality requirements used for clinical trials. So therefore, a doctor could ask for cannabis for their patient, but because there was no drug number, there was no 
supplier you can go to and say, I want 25 milligrams of compound X. The doctors were always denied uh, special access. That, that medical cannabis became a thing on its own. And then because of a court challenge, eventually became legalized. Mm. But with psilocybin and MDMA, those are drugs that are made for clinical trials by organizations with, um, with very high, high levels of quality and consistency and performance. And Health Canada has indicated that um, once the SAP is modified, which could happen in two months, could happen in a year, any physician with a patient with a, a, a condition like anorexia, treatment-resistant depression, end-of-life anxiety, end-of-life grief, so dealing with the survivors and helping them instead of the, the patients, that uh, they'll be open to giving SAP exemptions to those which, again, that's de facto legalization. We'll eventually have a, a broader framework for legalization, prescriptions, insurance, everything. But um, we'll, we'll be the first country in the world that with, with wide-scale use of psychedelics uh, and it's exciting. It's exciting as heck. Do you think the um, academic profession and the medical profession is uh, m moving fast enough in this area to, you know, a find people within departments of psychiatry or wherever to conduct research, and then b have administrators approve those those things within? Canada, because I, I, you know, I'm in Edmonton here. Um, you're in Eastern Canada. Um, I, I'm seeing it slowly emerging in some of the universities here, but it still seems to be fairly a fairly unknown treatment to to research for for a lot of particularly older researchers. What, what's been your experience yeah. there? We've been disappointed um, twofold. So we've seen tremendous work coming out of Imperial and Johns Hopkins. Mm -hmm. um, we've also seen uh, many universities, I'm going to not name them, but they're, they're brands, <laughs> um, seize upon psychedelics as an advertising channel to gain uh, endowment money. Mm -hmm. So they'll say, hey, we're creating a psychedelic research center. Give us $20 million and, uh, and we'll do this research and this research, but all they're doing is dressing up research they're already doing mm. um, and saying that, you know, adding the word psilocybin to a study that's really about something else like uh, neural ophthalmology or something like that. <laughs> mm -hmm. And uh, um, so, so we have universities glomming onto psychedelics as, as a way of trying to get, gather money. And then a bunch of universities that are ignoring it entirely including every university in Canada, um, because they don't get it yet. Now, they, that is changing. So we have at the foundation a proposal from the University of Toronto to create a new psychedelic research centre that's going to do genuine, innovative work in the field of psychedelic psychotherapy. Queen's University is considering something. Um, BCCSU, which the sorry British Columbia Center for Substance Use, yeah. affiliated with the University of British Columbia, has been considering doing addiction work. Um, it hasn't become a real uh, front of mind issue uh, for them yet um, at the university uh, itself. So we're we're you know 
it's it's we're slow. Yeah. LSD and a lot of its research was originally done in Canada. Yeah. Um, my my home province so, is Saskatchewan, as a matter of fact. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Maybe and, North Battleford. Yeah. Yeah. So so we're coming around to it. We're coming around to it. Uh, has it been something that you've had to? Has it been a push versus somebody pulling you in terms of trying to find researchers or institutions to think about that work, or has it been a, a combination of a push and a pull? No, it's, let's go with a combination. Okay. People, people who didn't have enough power at these institutions were were the pull. They were saying, "Hey, to come take a look, see what right. you can do here," and then us coming in with dollars behind us, going to the higher ups and saying, "No, this is much bigger than you think it is. This isn't one student's PhD project. This this is this is a whole new direction um, for your institution to take." Um, it's been a nice combination of efforts. Let's see if we get there. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I just like to say, um, just for me personally, I, I appreciate, um, the opportunity to have been able to talk to you, um, both professionally earlier and also you taking the time today to, to share, share your wisdom, knowledge and, um, lived experience. Um, you know, for, for me personally, I'm just so deeply interested in the human mind, but also, the psychological underpinnings of how us humans interact successfully and as unsuccessfully. And so I think the work that you're doing through your foundation is, is groundbreaking in itself in Canada. And so uh, very supportive of that work and I appreciate you um, sharing all your expertise and wisdom, Sanjay. Well, thank you. Thank you. I love talking about this stuff. You know, what, one of the things we didn't mention was the reason I was so resistant to accept the manic depressive diagnosis was because it was stigmatized, and the number way to one way to avoid stigmatization is for those of us who have this condition to talk about it, um, and that's true with psychedelics as well. It's like let's stop demonizing these things and the people who are using them um, and having success with them. Let's all talk about it. Quick shout out once again to Sanjay for sharing his lived experience and also the work he is doing through his foundation, the Nikkei Foundation. I believe that uh, the research that he's investing in is on the bleeding edge of mental health innovation, and I wish him all the best. A couple books that came up in the podcast that might be worth checking out. The first is by Anne Harrington called Mind Fixers, uh, Psychiatry's Troubled History with the Biology of Mental Illness um, in the book, and does a historical review of psychiatry and psychology's search for uh, the biology of mental illness and I think more relevant is which cures or treatments have been attempted over the the years decades and, and centuries you know one of my fixations over the last number of years has been uh, a fellow by the name of Egaz Moniz is probably not a household name, but Egaz, our good buddy Egaz, uh, back in the 1940s, won the Nobel Peace Prize in medicine. And what did he win the Nobel Peace Prize in medicine for? Well, that was for a novel mental health treatment, uh, particularly for those suffering with schizophrenia. And the treatment was the lobotomy. And the lobotomy might be a household name, but if it's not, 
Um, let me just get down to the essence of it is you take a screwdriver you stick it through your eyeball till you find the prefrontal cortex and once you're there start monkeying around until <laughs> until until you've severed enough nerves that schizophrenia no longer exists which uh, from time to time worked the only problem was that <laughs> as you can imagine uh, there are a number of other consequences associated that, with that as well. So our friend Egaz, uh, his Nobel Peace Prize was uh, rescinded decades later. But Anne explores uh, the lobotomy and other treatments over the years in her book, Mind Fixers. The other book, for those who might be interested in the history of psychedelic research, psychedelic medicine, is How to Change Your Mind by Michael Pollan. New York Times bestseller. Uh, it was released a few years ago and it's a great primer for those interested in the history of psychedelic medicine and the quote-unquote renaissance that has re-emerged as of late. Hope you guys enjoyed the podcast. It's going to be up on all the mediums, so feel free to share, like, do whatever the hell it is that you're supposed to do with it if you enjoyed it. If not, thanks for tuning into this one. Take care, stay safe, talk soon. Peace.